This morning we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, and so if you have your Bibles, would you please open up to Luke chapter 9. We'll be looking primarily at verses 37 through 45, but I want to just begin by reading verses 35 and 36. Follow along as I read. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray. Hallelujah, Heavenly Father. Glory be to our great God. It is our humble privilege, Lord, to be here today, to worship the risen Christ. And I ask by your great mercy that you would be with us during this time, that you would send your spirit to enlighten our eyes to see the Lord Jesus as he is. And it is in your name, your holy name, that we pray. Amen. The title for today's message is Honor the Son. Honor the Son. And I chose this title because in the immediate context, which we've seen twice now, as Peter, James, and John are beholding the resplendent glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, that another remarkable thing happens. For the second and final time in Luke's gospel, the Father speaks audibly from heaven. The first time, you'll recall, was when Jesus was baptized Chapter 3, I'll read it for you now. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus' identity is crystal clear. He is the Son of God and the only person on earth who is perfectly pleasing in the Father's sight. Fast forward to Luke chapter 9 where we are today and the father again identifies Jesus as his son, his chosen one. But this time he adds a command. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. From this moment on, as you follow my beloved son down this mountain and carry out your ministry, listen to him. And if you want to obey this command, you need to grasp its fullness. Because the Father desires more than shallow hearing, the mere hearing of Jesus' words. Jesus made that abundantly clear in chapter 6 when he said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you follow me from town to town? Why do you never miss one of my public teachings and not do what I tell you? The command is comprehensive. It's not just listen to his words, it's believe his words, obey his words, so that I think it is appropriate to express the Father's command in this way. Honor the Son. Honor the Son. Show the Son the honor that he is due as my chosen one. And as we turn to the passage immediately following this command, it is our first and excellent opportunity to prioritize doing just that. Amen? Now... That should cause us to ask the question, how do we honor the son? How do we honor the one who is worthy 
according to the scriptures, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. How do we do that? Here's the main point. The son is honored when you look to him and listen to him in faith. Let me say that again. The son is honored when you look to him and listen to him in faith. And in order to do that, we need God's word to help us understand what that looks like in practice. Now, before we dive into our passage, I want to add one more contextual note. At this point in Luke's gospel, we are witnessing a shift in Jesus's ministry. After Peter's confession that he was indeed the Christ of God, Jesus begins a new phase of discipleship for his closest followers. Contrary to what they had learned growing up, they needed to start wrapping their minds around an overlooked part of God's plan, and that is that the Christ of God must suffer. We saw this in verse 21, and Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell his identity as the Christ of God to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And it is after this statement that Luke now takes the opportunity in verses 35 to 50, sorry, 37 to 56 to emphasize Jesus's instruction of the disciples as he seeks to prepare them for the events that are coming, which is a strong possibility as to why Luke leaves out almost half of Mark's account of Jesus's healing of the boy with the unclean spirit, including a conversation between the Lord and the boy's father, as well as other details from Matthew's account, so that this morning we are going to be looking for specific elements of Jesus' interaction with his disciples in order to learn more about the proper way to honor God's Son. Let's go now to our first point. Honor the Son by looking to him in faith. Honor the Son by looking to him in faith. In verse 37, we pick up the day after the transfiguration, Jesus and his disciples have come down from the mountain, and a great crowd was there to meet our Lord. And immediately after setting up the scene, Luke focuses our attention on a specific issue that was going on while Jesus was away. He writes in verse 38, Behold, that is a command that means, look here, this is what you need to see. Behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Before we get into the specifics of why this man is begging Jesus to look at his son, we can already anticipate the seriousness of this request. Twice in Luke's gospel to this point, have we seen Jesus graciously intervene in a situation that involves a hurting parent and their only child. Luke chapter 7, as Jesus drew near to the gate of the town, behold, there's that word again, a man who had died and was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Again in Luke chapter 8, and there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years in age, and she was dying. I don't know if you've ever seen a distraught parent, but it commands your attention. 
They do not care about appearances. They don't care what it takes. They will do everything and anything in their power to get their child the help that they need. And so in the midst of a great crowd, as, Peter, as Luke records it, all eyes are on Jesus and this distraught parent. In the verse that follows, in verse 39, the father continues to plead his case for his only son. And behold, the father uses the same word, behold, look here, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, or you could say bruises him, and will hardly leave him. When you hear the father's description of his boy's condition, it is absolutely heartbreaking. And this just isn't physical suffering, which is bad enough. It is spiritual suffering, demonic enslavement of an only child made in the image of God. And I think we could all agree that there is something especially difficult about watching a child, those who are the most vulnerable among us, suffer in dramatic ways. A few years back, a beloved family in our church had to walk through a cancer diagnosis of their baby boy. And throughout the process, he lost weight, he lost his hair, he had a temporary tube inserted into his nose. And Sunday after Sunday, you couldn't help but look at this boy and say, Lord, have mercy on him. Heal his hurting body. Remove this cancerous intruder from his life. And God graciously answered that prayer. And today he is a strong, healthy boy. What a testimony to the compassion of our great Lord. Amen. So here in the passage, no doubt there are members of this crowd who are probably parents longing for the same thing. Lord, have mercy on this boy and his family. And if the last two instances of Jesus' interaction with an only child give any indication of what will happen next, there is great hope for this family. The prognosis looks great. Let today be the day of freedom. So exciting. And then verse 40 happens as the father finishes his account to Jesus. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now the focus of our attention has shifted from the father and the boy and the Lord to the father, the boy, Jesus, and his disciples. And the revelation of the disciples' failure is important for at least three reasons. The first reason the revelation of the disciples' failure is important is because it shows us that Luke's primary purpose for recording this account is not to demonstrate that Jesus has power or authority over demons. To this point, if you were looking for a passage to show that Jesus has authority over demons, chapter 8 is it. He casts out a literal legion of demons. The scope and magnitude of that deliverance proves definitively that Jesus has authority over demons. But not only does Jesus have authority over demons, Jesus has the authority to give authority over demons, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 9. I'll read it again. And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So while this narrative does, again, affirm Jesus' authority over demons, it is not Luke's primary reason for recording this story. Which leads us to the second reason. The second reason the revelation of the disciples' failure is important is because it wasn't an impossible request. 
When Jesus empowered his disciples, as we just saw, he didn't give them authority over some demons or a few of the demons or most of the demons or, hey, you take the sort of wimpy, pathetic demons and I'll take the big, scary ones. No, he gave them authority over all demons. The disciples' lack of ability was not due to their lack of authority. They had the authority, which should prompt us to ask the question, what went wrong? How does someone with the authority to do something fail to get it done? Which brings us to the third reason. The third reason the revelation of the disciples' failure is important is because it is the key to understanding what Jesus says next. Let's look at it now. So here we are in the midst of a desperate situation. We are longing for deliverance. We are longing to see this man's condition remedied. And Jesus finally intervenes and says, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that he spoke and he went on his way. No, as much as we want to hear Jesus's words from John chapter four, another incredible moment in the Lord Jesus ministry, we get something completely different here in chapter uh, 9, verse 41, it says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. O faithless and twisted generation. Now, if you were to make a list of the top 10 things to say to someone who is in crisis, this probably wouldn't make your list. I didn't write out a list, but I can promise you this. It wouldn't have made my list either. It seems harsh. It seems to lack compassion. After all, I thought the scripture says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in the setting of silver, Proverbs 35. And taking at face value, it is difficult to understand why Jesus says this and what he means. But if you were to keep reading in the Proverbs, the next verse says this, like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. A wise reprover or a wise rebuker is as valuable as gold to the person who has ears to hear what is said. And at this moment, Jesus's rebuke and frustration is exactly what needs to be heard. So let's break down three key elements of Jesus's rebuke in an attempt to understand better why he responds this way. The first key element of Jesus's rebuke in an attempt, uh, sorry, is the word you. How long am I to be with you, to bear with you? Here, the Greek word for you is plural, meaning that he's not only speaking to the father of the boy. And since the rebuke comes immediately after verse 40, this is a strong indication that Jesus has his, primary, uh, he has his disciples in mind. You'll recall from chapter 8 that Jesus' disciples had an advantage over the crowds, to them was given the privilege to know the secrets of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. They had received private instruction from Jesus. They had knowledge that no one else had access to. And yet, they still had a great need for instruction. So what is Jesus attempting to teach his disciples with these words? I believe it could be summarized this way. You will lack the ability to successfully carry out your ministry if you live like the faithless, twisted generation in which you reside. You will lack the ability to successfully carry out your ministry if you live like the faithless, twisted generation in which you reside, which introduces our next two key elements. 
The second key element of Jesus' rebuke is faithlessness, which leads us to believe the disciples' failure was in some way related to their lack of faith. And this isn't the first time that we've seen Jesus call out the disciples for their unbelief. You'll remember in chapter 7, when they're on the boat and the storm is there, and they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased and there was calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? The one thing that you need to endure the storms when they come. And what is the source of the disciples' unbelief? Thankfully, in that context, the next verse reveals that their lack of faith is grounded in a confusion about Jesus' identity. And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who is this that he commands even the winds and water? And they obey him. Confusion about Jesus' identity makes faith impossible. Consider again the scope of chapter 9. In verse 1, they received the authority from Jesus to cast out all demons and to heal diseases. And then in verse 6, it says they went about doing just that. They preached the kingdom and they also healed. And the implication is they did it with great success. They healed with success. So that's good. Verse 20, they learn more about Jesus' identity in a private conversation where Peter says, you are the Christ of God. That's new. But then in verse 22, Jesus says something that throws their understanding of who he is into crisis. The Christ of God must suffer. So that it's not surprising in verse 40, as they are struggling to comprehend new information about Jesus' identity, that their faith takes a devastating hit. You cannot honor the Son if you don't look to him in faith, and you can't look to him in faith if you don't fully understand who he is. And the disciples are still wrestling with, who is this Jesus? Which brings us to the third key element of Jesus' rebuke. A twisted generation. Twisted can also be translated perverted or distorted. And the idea here is something that is thoroughly twisted into a shape that is opposite of what it should be. And while the disciples are the primary focus of this exchange, the present generation in which they are living is not without guilt. Many commentators here see Jesus' reference to a twisted generation as an allusion back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32, which reads, They have dealt corruptly with him, that is, the Lord, the rock. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Commenting on this verse, R. Kent Hughes writes, In Moses' time, the people had become twisted, bent, perverted, and as a result of their lack of faith and their departure from God was the reason why. Such crookedness always accompanies unbelief. So here Jesus is highlighting the seriousness of unbelief and its twisting, perverting effect on God's people and primarily, in this case, his disciples, which brings us to Jesus' exasperation. Jesus was just on the mountaintop Speaking about his departure from the world, he is verses away in chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 51, from setting his face towards Jerusalem to go and die. His time left on earth is short, and yet here are his disciples still struggling with faith. So he cries out, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? The Savior 
has real concern for the faithless state of his disciples and is rightfully frustrated by their continued unbelief. Now, after the beginning of verse 41, O faithless and twisted generation, whatever hope you had that the situation would end well might be standing on shaky ground. Boy, that's not what I expected to hear. Whoa, that's kind of scary. And yet, despite Jesus' real frustration over the disciples' lack of faith, the Savior remains just that, the compassionate one who delivers. Jesus concludes by saying, bring your son here. Bring your son to me. And if you're in the crowd, it's possible that this is what you've been waiting for since Jesus came down the mountain. I want to see the miracle worker in action. When is this going to get good? And if that's why they're here, on this day they came to the right place. Because as the boy is coming to Jesus, this unclean spirit does throw him to the ground, convulse him, and give evidence that this is indeed what had been happening to this poor child. And just to pause a moment, how often when we read scripture, do we just sort of glance right over verses like that? This would have been a horrific sight. As a parent, I'm horrified when one of my children falls and bumps their head, just gets a minor bump, and they stop crying after two minutes. This is infinitely scarier than that. Terrifying, heart-gripping, scary stuff. And it is while everyone's eyes are fixed on the Savior that Jesus rebukes the Spirit, heals the boy, and gives him back to his father. And what was the result? Verse 52. All were astonished at the majesty of God. All were astonished at the majesty of God. No longer are the father, the boy, or the disciples the focus of this scene. Everyone's eyes are on the majesty of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there's nowhere else to look but at him. What an incredible sight to see. And it gets even better for us 2,000 years later. Remember, Peter, James, and John were just on the mountain, and they saw the glory of God, the brilliant, blinding glory of the Son of God on the mountaintop. And it was truly a unique experience. But here's what's fascinating about the majesty of God in the valley, where this unclean boy and the crowd is. In his second epistle, Peter uses this same word for majesty to describe what he saw on the mountaintop. I'll read it for you. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Okay, Peter, well, when did that happen? He goes on, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. When the Son of God is present, it is possible to see his glory. You don't need a mountaintop experience in order to believe. All you need are eyes to see him in faith. So the exhortation for us is to honor the Son by looking to him in faith. Behold his majesty, behold his compassion, and believe in him. And at first glance, if we're looking at the passage, it appears as though that's what's happening here. After all, everyone is astonished. They are being astonished at the majesty of God. Look at him. We've never seen anything like him before. But there is a type of looking, a shallow 
superficial looking, that lacks faith and does not honor the Son. Here's how John puts it. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, Jesus, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And that's good, right? That's what we want. We want faith in the Son. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Unbelief, twisted hearts, an evil generation seeking after a sign. How will fallen mankind ever be able to look upon the sun in faith? We're going to come back to that question. Now let's move on to our second main point. Honor the sun by listening to him in faith. Honor the son by listening to him in faith. So as we continue, Luke records that there is a general sense of wonder at the Lord Jesus. People are marveling at everything that he is doing. But while the crowds are content to be amazed, Jesus takes the opportunity to provide specific instruction to his disciples. Let's read it again. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus reiterates the Father's command. Listen to me. Let my words sink down deep into your ears. Hear what I am saying. The time is quickly coming for me to be delivered into the hands of men. And this is now the second time that Jesus has spoken of his death, a reality that is fast approaching. And even though it was their second opportunity to hear and understand what he said. They don't. They don't. By this point in the gospel, we almost expect the disciples to misunderstand Jesus when he speaks. And you can see Jesus rightly is getting frustrated with this. But here, Luke gives a really interesting detail as to why they couldn't understand that you won't find in Matthew or Mark's account. Luke records that the saying was concealed or veiled from them so that they might not understand it which poses an interesting question. Who or what concealed this truth from the disciples? Well, we've already seen that God is active in concealing truth from individuals according to his sovereign wisdom. That was Jesus' purpose for teaching in parables. God determines who hears and who doesn't. But we also know that the scripture says that Satan is actively involved in blinding people to the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? The good news of the kingdom goes out, it falls on hard soil, it is met with rejection, and Satan takes the seed and snatches it so that faith and salvation cannot happen. And while it's true that both of those things hinder hearing, it's also true that sin hinders hearing. Here's what Paul writes of the natural man in 1 Corinthians. He says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So while Luke doesn't tell us here who or what is actively concealing the saying from them, whether it's one, whether it's a combination of the three, it is safe to say that God is ultimately the one responsible for concealing the statement from them. But not only was the saying concealed, we get even more insight into the present state of the disciples when we read that they were afraid to ask Jesus what he meant. They were afraid to ask him about the saying. 
Remember, that wasn't true after Jesus told the parable of the sower. After he was done, they immediately went to him and said, what does it mean? Help us understand it. I, I grasp that there's something here I need to get, but I can't get it. Help us. Which causes me to wonder, what's changed? Why are they so afraid now? Well, there are probably lots of reasons. One possibility is their lack of faith. We've already seen that fear goes hand in hand with a lack of faith. The disciples were afraid on the boat and lacking fear when Jesus calmed the storm. We see Jesus command Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe. So it's possible that it's related in some way to their lack of faith. Another possibility is the seriousness of the topic. Now, the parables revealed real truth about the kingdom of God that they are wrapping their minds around as they follow Jesus. But when you start talking plainly about the king of that kingdom, referred to here as the son of man, which is a reference to God's chosen king in Daniel chapter 7, and that that king must suffer and die, well, that doesn't match up so well with the promise that we have from God, the heavenly father, that he will receive dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and whose kingdom shall not be destroyed. It's common sense. You can't have an eternal ruler if your ruler is dead. Many of the, the empires throughout history will tell you that. You can't do it. And that's a serious problem for the disciples. So that's one possibility. Still another possibility is that they're beginning to consider the implication of Jesus's words, if indeed they turn out to be true. If Jesus is handed over and killed, what does that mean for my plans? I'm supposed to be the executive treasurer of the kingdom of God. I've worked my whole life for that. That's the top of the career ladder. You can't get any higher than that. I'm not letting that slip away. Or if Jesus has to suffer, and I am a follower of Jesus, it's possible that I will have suffering in store for me as well. Whatever the reason for their fear, the disciples at this point in the gospel are unable to honor the Son by listening to him in faith. Which brings us back to the question. We can come back to our question from earlier. How will the disciples ever be able to look to Jesus and listen to him in faith? What is the missing piece? What must happen to make the honor of the Son possible? And the answer is found in Jesus' first prediction of his death in verse 22. Read it again with me. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised before the disciples will be able to honor the Son as God desires. They must be eyewitnesses to the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why Jesus commands them after the revelation that he is the Christ of God, tell no one. Don't tell anyone. You're not ready to receive it. It goes against everything you've believed. It doesn't meet your expectations. The 12 apostles needed to see the end before they could lay the foundation of the church. But once they had, men like Peter can stand up in the power of the Spirit on Pentecost with all the Jews gathered in Jerusalem and say, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up 
loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Amen. To preach a glorious Christ, you need the full picture of God's work of redemption. And if you know the rest of the gospel story, this is exactly what happens. Listen to a few verses from Luke 24, which is right here at the end of Luke's gospel. Then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything must be fulfilled about me uh, in the scriptures and the Psalms and the prophets. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. No longer is Jesus's meaning hidden from them. But he himself opens their minds to hear with understanding what he has said in the past and believe it by faith. Luke continues, and Jesus said to them, thus it is written that, the, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And you are eyewitnesses of these things. No longer do the disciples have an incomplete picture of God's plan. The resurrected Christ is standing in their presence. It's amazing. They are finally able to see him for who he is and believe in him by faith. And what is the result of finally being able to look upon Jesus and listen to Jesus in faith? Verse 52 says that they worshipped him. They gave to him the honor that he was do. Beautiful. Let's close with some application. The son is honored when you look to him and listen to him in faith. You must have eyes to see the fullness of his glorious gospel, which includes Jesus' perfect life without sin, his substitutionary sacrificial death for sinners, his glorious resurrection from the dead, and his ascension back into heaven where he is now preparing to come again. A deficient view of Jesus, even one that has great wonder or respect for him as a prophet or a miracle worker or a teacher, will not give him the honor that he is due. You must also have ears to hear his words, his exhortation to listen to him, to come to me for eternal life. For after all, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You must hear his commands for righteous living, his demand for obedience, because a heart that is resistant to the words of Christ will not be able to bring him honor that he is due. Today, if you do not have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, myself, every believer in this room, every believer in the world will implore you, place your faith in Christ, put your hope in God's chosen one, listen to the words of the Son, and give him the honor that he is due because this is God's desire for all men. And there are eternal stakes for obedience and for disobedience. You must heed the exhortation from Psalm 2 that is given to the rulers of the world. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son or honor the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. There is no escape from the coming wrath of God on sin except for in the son which is why his final words are, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Yeah. You need a refuge. Come to the Savior and find the refuge that you need, and you will be saved. Amen. For those of you
who already have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You will lack the ability to be effective as a follower of the Lord Jesus if you live like the faithless, twisted generation in which you reside. And just like the disciples, your lack of ability won't be for lack of resources. The scriptures tell us that the Father has given you every spiritual blessing in Christ. You possess the powerful, indwelling Holy Spirit, and you have the fullness of the gospel message and the complete inspired word of God. So how do you honor God? How do you honor him in the church, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your school, in your job, in your extended family? You must look to the Son and listen to him in faith, and he will graciously provide you with everything that you need to honor him in a worthy manner. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are stunned at the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are thankful to be here today, able to celebrate not only his sacrificial death, but his glorious resurrection. And it is with a living hope that you have placed in our heart that we anticipate his glorious return. Help us, Lord. Help us to be witnesses to a twisted and crooked generation. Fill us with strength, and may we honor you in all that we do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.